men. And let's remain standing for the <coughs> our Old Testament reading, which is found <coughs> excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. And then our New Testament reading and text will be Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So if you would put your finger in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, <clears throat> and then we'll text first from Nehemiah uh, chapter 8, beginning with verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught all the people, said who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to do not for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And now our New Testament reading from Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Be seated in this prayer. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word, both from from the old book and from the new book. The Old Testament and from the new. Father, we long for our hearts to be full of joy because of Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that as we take up the study of this the epistle to the Philippians, that you would instruct us in these things. Father, bless the reading and the hearing of your word and now grant strength and the unction of the Holy Spirit to your servant in the proclamation of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think you can probably figure out that I'm beginning a new sermon series this morning from Paul's letter to the Philippians. For those who have been here, uh, last time I was here, two weeks ago, we concluded our study of the book of Titus. We took up that study in preparation for pastor, for an evangelist, for a pastor to come and serve. And of course, we've been praying for our search committee and their labors. <clears throat> and our hopes are that that's going to be sooner rather than later, but that belongs to the Lord. But also in the book of Titus, we see not only that Titus was left on the island of Crete to set in order the things that remain, but what he did in setting in order the things that remain was he equipped and he appointed men to serve as elders in the church there. 
And so in our study of Titus, we saw not only what we needed for the coming of our organizing pastor, but also something of what his labors will be and beyond that to the end of this not being a mission work anymore. God to raise up from among you men who will serve as elders, men who will serve as deacons in the life of this church, the call of a pastor will be uh, before God your own congregation and not a mission work of our sister and mother work in, in Virginia Beach at that time. So we were looking forward with our study of Titus to those things. Well, why Philippians? Well, I just wanted to preach from Philippians. Is there anything wrong with that? As a young Christian, Philippians was my favorite of Paul's epistles. It's so personal. It's so warm when you read this particular uh, letter uh, to the Philippians. And when I was ordained as a minister way back in horse and buggy days and to my first church in Lenore City, Tennessee, if I recall correctly, the first sermon series I did was in Philippians. Then I realized a few years ago when I was trying to decide where to go next in our mission work in Winston-Salem and settled upon Philippians, I don't think I preached all of these years from 1979 until about four years ago in in Winston-Salem. But I'm not going to let another 40 years go by uh, before I, I, I preach again. I've taught it. Actually, I've, I teach a course at Grand Bible College uh, <clears throat> periodically in the summers, one of these condensed, intensive courses, and the prison epistles, which are Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Colossians, and Philemon. Um, I think I've taught that course five or six times over the last 20 years at the college, um, and we do verse-by-verse exposition as we work through those prison epistles. So I love it, because I love it. I think you're going to love it as well if you don't already as we approach it. This morning is an introductory sermon. I'm going to expound the very brief text that we have briefly at the end, but I want to introduce this letter because I'm going to give you a homework. I think everyone knows that for the summer we have suspended our evening services, Uh, We would encourage you to be faithful to keep the Lord's Day, the whole of the day. One way to do that, of course, is to do family worship or to gather together with each other in the evening of the Lord's Day. Uh, Or if you're living by yourself, uh, to spend time in God's Word, especially as you come to the end of the day. And what I want to encourage you, this is your homework for today. You can do it this afternoon, you can do it this evening, you can do it when you decide to do it, but do it soon. I want you to read the epistle to the Philippians from beginning to end. And when we did Titus, I read the whole of the book of Titus. It's not very long. Philippians is only a little bit longer than Titus. Read it as if you were in Philippi. I mean, you were in Philippi. And this letter has just from the Apostle Paul. This is how they were read. And someone of your number, whoever delivered the letter, stands up and says, we got a letter from the Apostle Paul and reads it to them. 
fathers or husbands and families that would gather around the table and to open up the book of Philippians and just read it from beginning to end. As our brothers and sisters in Philippi so many years ago first received this letter. And this sermon is to help you in that endeavor, to prepare you for that endeavor. <clears throat> the first thing I want to talk about, though, is, is Philippi itself. It's a unique city, and it's a city rich in history. Um, about 350 B.C. or so, there was a ruler in Macedonia called Philip, and he had a very famous son named Alexander the Great. Have you ever heard of Alexander the Great? Remember your, your history and learning about Alexander the Great? Uh, and Alexander the Great named the city of Philippi after his father. And so it's rich in history, in Greek history as well. But, but if you fast forward then, just a couple of hundred years, 250 years or so further, it becomes rich in the history of Rome as well. Can anybody remember Julius Caesar? Either from history or from Shakespearean uh, uh, plays, this kind of thing. Julius Caesar Latin in high school, but it was so long ago. This is about all the Latin I know. Et tu, Brute. You remember that? Et, and you, Brutus? Because Brutus, his friend, participated in his assassination. Following the assassination of, 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 of Julius Caesar, of course, there's civil war. You know, who's going to rule and who's going to rule where? And it's quite complicated, the different arrangements that took place. But there, there did come an alliance. Octavian and, um, and Mark Antony, it was a, on and off again, somewhat alliance, but at this particular point, they were allied together against Brutus and Cassius, and the definitive battle that decided that was fought at Philippi, this very same Philippi. And Octavian ultimately became the first emperor of Rome and took the name Augustus. And if you recall, he was the emperor when the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Caesar Augustus. And because of that victory at Philippi, he gave Philippi a nickname that can be loosely translated Little Rome. So if you were born in Philippi, it's the same as if you were born in Rome. It's the little Rome is Philippi. And, and so there's significance that you see in, in, in the city there. And, and this makes sense. If you're reading in the book of Acts and reading about how Paul came to Philippi, and, and I'm going to walk through all of that here in just a minute, but you remember towards the end of his stay at Philippi, they were in prison. Paul and Silas were in prison. And you had the jailbreak where the prisoners don't escape. <laughs> It's one of these unique things that you find in Scripture that led to the conversion of, of the, the, the Philippian jailer and to the baptism of his entire family. It's a wonderful story that we read about there. And then after he bandages their wounds and, and they're baptized by them, but he takes them back to jail. And the next morning, the magistrates, they want to release these men. And at that point, Paul says, No, <laughs> you tell them to come and and themselves and release us because they scourged us and were Roman citizens. And they were terrified because they had scourged 
Roman citizens because in Philippi they knew what it meant and all of the benefits and blessings that come with being citizens of Rome. Now I've often wondered why didn't Paul and Silas tell them we're Roman citizens before they were scourged? Maybe they did. Maybe they weren't listening. We don't know. But, of course, in that case, they were very apologetic for magistrates were. And they said, um, would you please leave town? (laughs) Is what took place that's there. But but you can understand some of the sense of what it meant to be a part of Rome, even though in Greece. The other thing that I would say about Philippi is located. It's in northern Greece. There's a province there that was called Macedonia. You'll recognize other cities there as well from the book of Acts and also even from from two of the epistles that Paul wrote. Thessalonica and Berea are two other cities and then Philippi in northern Greece. Greece is where Achaia, the province of Achaia, was located and that's where Athens and Corinth were in South Greece. So we're talking about northern Greece, not Italy, and yet Philippi was little Rome. Rome in Italy was big Rome. That's where Caesar himself uh, lived. So that's a little something about the city itself, its location, and, um, and something of the history of the city, just a touch of history, both in Greek history as well as in in Roman history. But what about Paul's relationship to the church? And uh, this is something that you see when you see the epistles. Every church is different. You're different than all the other mission works I've worked with over the last 20 years. Of course, you're my favorite. You know that. You're my favorite. Don't ask any of the others if I've ever said anything like that to them, okay, or not. Now, my favorite is the one I'm in at the time, but you really are a favorite. You just have to know this. I I am so pleased with the people that God has brought together here with your advice for each other, for the planning of this church, for your labors, for how hard you work in the life of this church, for the unity that God has blessed us with in, in this church. Um, I, I, I do love this mission work, and I have a very warm relationship with you. That was the way Paul was with Corinthians. But it's not always the case. If you read the Corinthian epistles, Paul's relationship to them was quite traumatic. How many letters did he write in Corinthians? There are two in the Bible. He wrote at least four. <laughs> There's one that he refers to in 1 Corinthians that he had written before. So there's one before what we call 1 Corinthians. There's one that he refers to in 2 Corinthians that's after 1 Corinthians. And then there's the one that we call 2 Corinthians. And the relationship was up and down, up and down with the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians is a corrective letter of all of the problems and abuses that were in that particular church. He loved the church at Corinth. It's Christ's church. And I've had mission works that were more like Corinth, <laughs> and I've had that were more like Philippi. You guys are more like Philippi. Let's keep it that way, okay? The relationship is exceedingly warm with Philippi. But how did Paul get there? Recall that Paul 
and Barnabas went on a first missionary journey together. The Holy Spirit set them apart. They were sent out from Antioch. They go even up into southern Galatia. They're planting churches there. They're preaching the gospel, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ Jesus. They're not imposing the law of Moses upon the Gentiles because Christ has fulfilled it, so the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised or to be baptized. And a controversy erupts over that very issue. You have the Jerusalem Council, which I tell people is the first general assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I may have said that to you before because it was Orthodox bringing straight to doctrine. It was Presbyterian because the elders were there with the apostles <laughs> and it was a general assembly of the church. I'm being facetious when I say that's our first general assembly. I don't really mean that. But at that, the conclusion was, no, this is right, this is good, Paul and Barnabas are right. A pastoral was written, a letter was written by Jude, I mean by James, the brother of Jesus, and they were sent on their way to take that letter to the churches that had been established. Recall they get back up to Antioch and there's a falling out between Barnabas and Paul uh, over John Mark. Barnabas says, John Mark wants to come again. Paul says, no, he turned back last time. Barnabas said he's learned his lesson. Paul says, I'm not sure he has. And they go their separate ways. Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus. Paul and Silas this time to strengthen the churches to deliver the pastoral letter on what is called the second missionary journey. But they're not satisfied with just going back to encourage the churches that are established. No, they are compelled by God to take the gospel further. The Great Commission is telling them to go further. And everywhere they want to go, the Holy Spirit says no. We want to go to Asia. The Holy Spirit says no. We want to go to Pisidia. The Holy Spirit says no. We want to go to Bithynia. The Holy Spirit says no. You, you remember that as you're reading the book of Acts? I don't know how he said no. It doesn't tell us they were just prohibited by the Holy Spirit from going to all these places where they wanted to preach the gospel. And then Paul goes to sleep at night as a vision from God. It's a man from Macedonia that's saying, come here, we need help. And when he opens his eyes when he wakes up. He tells Silas and the others about the vision. They said, that's where we're going to go. And they go to Troas. They're at Troas when he has a vision. They get in the ship. They sail, not up and go up around the Black Sea to the places that they wanted to go, but they follow the directive of the Lord through Samothrace, which is a little island between the coast there. As you're coming into Greece itself, they stop at this little place called Neapolis, which is a seaport city. They park their boat there. They find their way to Philippi, the city to which he later writes this particular letter. Now, you need to understand what's taking place. You need to understand in terms of the expansion of the gospel what's taking place. Granted, later, he will go to Asia. Later, churches will be planted in these other areas. But in God's purposes, God is taking the gospel to the world. What happens when they set foot in Neapolis? What happens when they go to Philippi and first preach the gospel there on that first Sabbath and out by the water to Lydia and some of the other Jewish ladies that are there? The gospel has moved from Asia, not Asia Minor, 
from the continent of Asia to the continent of Europe. The gospel is going to the world. And Philippi is the first place Paul preaches the gospel on the continent. The gospel has spread. It spread across another bigger sea. It spread to York County, Virginia. That gospel has spread here. It's come into our hearts because Jesus said, make disciples of the nations. And Paul and Silas, they go from Asia, they go to Europe. And the gospel is going to Europe as they arrive at Philippi. And you recall, they go to this place where these ladies are gathering, mostly ladies, on the Sabbath, because Paul did go to the Jews first in every place, the Jews are present, then to the Gentiles. There's eschatological significance for that, I'm not going to talk about now, but there is. He goes to those who preaches the gospel, Lydia's heart is opened to the gospel, she and her family are baptized, the church is born in Philippi. Then as they're going into the streets, you remember there was this demon-possessed girl that followed them around, says, these men are servants of the Most High God, which is true. She had a spirit of divination, and if she could read fortunes, her owners made money off of her gift. These are servants of the Most High God. They declare to us a way to salvation. That's not exactly true. They declared the way to salvation. So see, Satan twisted it just a little bit. Just a little bit. And eventually Paul got annoyed at what was happening. Was he annoyed because the message was incomplete? Because Jesus is the way of salvation, not a way among others. Was he annoyed? and angry because of the way this young woman was taken advantage of by her owners, the way she was being abused by them. Was he annoyed because Satan had seized her soul and he cared for her? Probably all of these things. He cast the devil out of her. He cast the demon out of her. She comes to faith in Christ Jesus. She is healed by the power of God apostolic sign is Paul takes authority over that demon and casts it out of her. But she also loses her gift, if you want to call it that. The spirit of divination is gone. That means her owners can't make any money off of her anymore. And money talks everywhere. I see it. Position against Paul and Silas, and that's how they ended up in the prison. I want you to think about this. They were put in an, an inner dungeon after being scourged. Their feet are in stocks. It's the middle of the night. They're in prison for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why they're there. And what are they doing? They're singing hymns. That's what they're doing. Probably songs. They're rejoicing in the midst of tribulation. They're sinking prices. Most of us, if someone says something unkind or mean towards us because we're a Christian, think it's persecution. Have any of you ever tasted this kind of persecution? 
I have a friend who has. Y'all know vicarious radiations? Y'all met Zeki? He's our pastor of our church in Georgia. He's a refugee to this country. Had to flee here for his life from Eritrea. When the communist governments took over there and shut down the churches, they were forbidden to worship, so they worshipped anyway, even though for eight years they didn't sing, lest they be heard and found out, they read the hymns and psalms. He was imprisoned on a number of occasions. He told me one time about he was in prison, he was being beaten and tortured in prison, and he despaired almost of life. Why is what came to his heart? He was about to give up, and he began to hear his brothers and sisters and other sales sing praises to God. And his heart was filled with the spirit and with joy. And the Lord spared him through that temptation. He's a mighty man of God and dear brother. Dear, dear brother. I know he's preached before at RP. Zeki's never preached here. Yeah, but he's, you guys have probably heard him at RPC. I, I can't help but read about what happened with Paul and Silas and not think about what happened to my brother. There are brothers and sisters in Christ that are being in this world. And yes, I think persecution is intensifying against the Church of Jesus Christ in our culture today. And I think, apart from revival, it's only going to get worse. And the day may come when we're like Paul and Silas. The day may come when we're in a rat-infested dungeon and our feet in stocks. Although they don't typically do it quite that way anymore. Paul understood the gospel is never chained, and that's a message of Paul's letter to the Philippians. That's a message we're going to see in this epistle. And there's something crisis, and there's an earthquake, and there's an angel, and, and the doors fall off the jail, and, and the stocks fall off of their feet. Can, can you imagine this? But they don't go anywhere. Isn't that something? And the Philippian jailer, we've already talked about him briefly. He sees what's happened. The earthquake has come. His assumption is the prisoners have escaped. He knows he's responsible for them. He knows it's going to be his life. He's going to take his own life. Lest he has to face the magistrates and the police himself for letting them get away. And Paul says, and Silas say, don't hurt yourself. And he says, what must I do to be saved? Remember? How, how would he even know the question? Maybe he heard them singing. Maybe he heard of what Paul had been preaching. We don't know. But somehow, this is, this is what arises from his heart. What must I do to be saved? And Paul says, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That's a good Presbyterian verse, especially that last little section on the end of it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be safe. You and your household. And he takes them out and he puts balm on their wounds and he bandages them. And he and his household are baptized and become a new, growing, this new church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a glorious story. Of course, I already told you how it ends. 
how the magistrates asked them, would you please leave? <laughs> would you please leave? And they go up to Berea and they go to Thessalonica and they plant churches in those places as well as they continue their journey. But how do we get to this epistle? Got to fast forward. That was the second missionary journey. Paul makes a third missionary journey. Paul stops briefly at Philippi twice on the third missionary journey. He didn't spend a lot of time there, but there's no question about it. The relationship is exceedingly warm. He's the one who brought the gospel to them. Remember what happened at the end of the third missionary journey? Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. Paul makes appeal to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. And then an arduous journey by boat until he finally arrives in Rome where he's in prison, not in a dungeon, but in a rented house that he had to with himself. And in God's provision, it's extraordinary. He's in a rented house. He can't go anywhere. He's shackled to palace guards that are there around the clock, but he can have unlimited visitors. And people are coming, and they're coming, and they're coming, and what does he do? He preaches, he preaches, he preaches, and people are being converted. Even some of the guard are being converted because they, they can't go anywhere. Now, that's a captive audience for a preacher, you know, when you're chained to the guy. And he hears the gospel and he's converted so that even those in Caesar's own household came to faith in Christ Jesus. The gospel is not chained. It's a message that we see in the book of Philippians. But the Philippians didn't know he was in jail. And then they get word. And they say, we got to do something, God, brother, and I'll follow in the faith. And they take up a collection, and the Macedonians are known for their giving. They take up a collection. They take one of their own, Epaphroditus. They send Epaphroditus with a collection. You go to Rome. You make sure all of Paul's needs are taken care of. You stay, and you minister to him. As soon as they learned his need, they sprang into action to meet the need of their brother. Now, as we read the letter, we see Paul doesn't see himself to be in need, but this is the seasoned saint who sees things differently than most everybody else sees things. He knew, humanly speaking, he was in need, but before God, he was not. But he's grateful. And his heart was full of joy, just as it was in that Philippian jail. You can see his heart's full of joy in a Roman jail as we read this particular epistle. It's an epistle of joy. It's an epistle of rejoicing in the midst of tribulation. This is what we're going to see repeated over and over again. But his heart is warmed because the church of Jesus Christ in Philippi says, we're going to take care of our God. It doesn't matter what it takes. We're going to send the paradigms. We're going to send everything that we can send to care for his physical and his material need when he's there imprisonment. And then Paul sits down, and this is a thank you letter. That's what it is. It's a thank you note to the Philippians for their love for him. Now, I don't like to say be like, 
Be like Daniel. Be like Paul. Be like... But be like the Philippians. <laughs> and I'm not talking about towards me. I'm being towards each other. The pastor that God sends to us. And you love him. Like these love your pastor. Now... I'm going to the exposition briefly these two verses. All of that is introduction to help you when you sit down this evening and read the epistle from beginning to end. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This is the title he prefers for himself. Not apostle. Servants of Christ Jesus. He is an apostle, but he's a bondslave of Jesus Christ. And Timothy, his son, who's with him. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Look at that word, saint. It's a wonderful word we almost never use. Has anybody ever said, hey, saint, how are you doing today? Yeah, every morning. <laughs> <laughs> why don't we call each other saints well our Roman Catholics have stolen the word as part of it and they have corrupted the word and applied it only to certain people who have done works of subjugation that's what they're called that is, that is works above the call of duty above what Christ would call them to do when Christ says when you've done You've done everything. You're an unprofitable servant. It's, I don't know where that doctrine came from. And it's only bestowed upon a few, but not in the Bible. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're a saint. It means a holy one. I think that's another thing. We don't like to think of ourselves as being holy ones. Because we look in the mirror and we say, I don't look so holy sometimes. But you are. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to you. It's credited to your account. And you are united to that Christ. The Holy Spirit enthrals you. And guess what? He is sanctifying you by degree. One step forward, one step back sometimes. One step forward, two steps back, three steps forward. You just went one step back. Yet there is progress. And holiness, but you are holy with you who sees his son Jesus Christ. We shouldn't lose this word. To the saints who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, the word overseer there, in, in the Latin you get the English word bishop from that. To the bishops and to the deacons. Now, I'm comparing Scripture to Scripture, especially if you, if you compare First Timothy and Titus, and the, the, which we've looked at that comparison before we studied the book of Titus. You see that Paul prefers to use the word overseer or bishop in one. He uses the word elder in the other. We see they're the same man. This is why we're Presbyterians. Elder, presbyter, that is the office. It means they have hoary heads. 
which means what's left is pride. <laughs> the, the mature men of God in the Latin church. But their duty, their responsibility, their ministry is to serve as overseers of the flock of God. The overseers are the elders. And so he speaks to the saints, that is to everyone. He also speaks to the overseers, the elders who serve as overseers, and the deacons, the offices, the perpetual offices that he's given the life of the church. These are the ones he's addressing in this epistle. The saints and also the leadership in the church. And then the apostolic salutation, and every Sunday I'm here, you hear it. We begin the service with an apostolic salutation. Paul does this oftentimes in his epistles. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you hear those words pronounced by me or by Pastor Lowell or by Pete or by uh, Pastor Doe or Jeff Downs or, or Andrew Miller or any of those who come and preach here, when you hear the salutation or at the end of the service, when you hear the benediction that's pronounced, I've told you this before, you receive it from Christ Jesus who stands behind the men of God who pronounce it. And there's power in benediction. And the only difference between salutation and benediction is you do one at the beginning, you do the other at the end. They're both grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, that's what you need most. That's what sinners need. Grace. Grace to you and peace. And peace here is not simply the absence of conflict or the absence of warfare. It is the presence of the benediction, the presence of the blessing of God (coughs) upon you. You receive it. So when you hear the benediction at the end of the service, you receive that benediction even as you received the, the salutation and greeting at the beginning of the service. Grace you in peace from God our Father. <laughs> so it's so wonderful that Jesus has revealed this to us. That we can call Almighty God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who is the second person of the Godhead He is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. The the salutation comes to you from him. He came to the Philippians. It comes to us. And so, the next time I'm here in two weeks, I believe, we will take up the first of this epistle. We will work through it step by step as well. Father, we thank you for your word, even this short word of two verses, and yet inspired of you, but also of this epistle that you have preserved, that's included in the canon of Scripture, that is your infallible and inerrant word to us. Lord, teach us, instruct us, encourage us, and correct us as we continue to study this portion of your word. Make the hearts and minds of your people ready to read it this evening. We pray in Jesus' name.